politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for everything that matters from life, liberty, property to our standard of living, quality of life, and the future of the human race itself all on the line. Today, we are reporting to you, Daniel Horowitz, that is back in the house for a brand new week, Monday the 24th, from Texas Hill Country, God's country here at Patriot Academy's brand new campus. Um, it's still getting getting worked on, but we have the ranges up, so we are going to have our five-day defensive handgun training course. You should be jealous. You should be going if you can't make it. Um they have trips pretty much every few weeks now. So, again, check that out at patriotacademy.com slash Daniel. So every week I wonder, you know, which issue should I talk about? Which civilization issue needs to be dealt with? Which fire do we put out? Well, one big one, obviously, is crime. Why is crime spiking? Well, because of racial supremacism. Because we don't want to deter criminals because we are too scared to lock up too many blacks. That is, as painful as it is to hear it, that is the bottom line as to why both parties have acceded to this nonsense over the past few years. But it's not just about crime. We're going to have Heather McDonald coming up. She'll be talking about her new book, When Race Trumps Merit. And basically, unless we fight racial supremacism... This notion that everything has to be race-based rather than just applying the law and merit equally, we will not have a civilization. Now, I, I, I was driving out from the airport here at San Antonio, which is a city that's full of BLM, but you get out a little bit and you're in God's country. And I'm thinking, man, maybe this is where I need to evacuate, Texas Hill Country. But you know what? Even if the crime doesn't get us here, other aspects of disparate impact will affect us, and they'll, it will affect us very quickly. So yeah, we're going to have Heather coming up very soon. Our first sponsor today, Patriot Mobile, here that I'm at Patriot Academy, if you want to be a patriot. Um, look, we live in a banana republic. Our judicial system is a toilet. It's depressing. Um, for years, the big mobile companies have been dumping millions into leftist causes. Patriot Mobile, America's only conservative wireless provider, they have actually been funding lawsuits by by you know allies of ours that have been pushing pro-life agenda, Second Amendment, veterans, military, you name it. Typically, it's hard to switch away from a monopoly, but in this case, it's all gain and no pain. Go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call their guaranteed English-speaking customer service, 878-PATRIOT, and they'll make it easy for you. They'll walk it through. They'll walk you through it. Get activation code um, or get activation with the offer code CR. Uh, so remember, patriotmobile.com slash CR, 878-PATRIOT, and offer code CR today. Guaranteed coverage wherever you go, just like on the three major networks, except without without your money going to fund those who hate you. Make the switch today, patriotmobile.com slash CR. So folks, I want to preface today's show with um, 
you know, just something that I feel embodies the time we live in, really embodies it. And you're just going to have to indulge me a little bit here because, you know, the audio is going to be a little bit different. I'm not in my home studio. But um, there's an article here. Where is this? An Illinois state senator. And I'm just trying to get this, pull this up, so just bear with me. Um, Some of you might have seen last week there was this vicious video that surfaced showing someone just beating up, or not so a whole crowd beating on this white girl in Chicago. And it was part of the broader rioting that was going on there. You know, every every few weeks there's there's more rioting, more pain. And where is this? Fox News, an Illinois state senator defended the Chicago teen takeover that unfolded Saturday night, left multiple boys shot, claiming it was simply a mass protest against poverty and segregation. Robert Peters, who represents parts of Chicago, responded to the chaotic scene that saw hundreds of youth smash smash car windows, jumping on surrounding vehicles, and firing guns in the streets. So basically, our political protests are violence, and their violence is a political protest. Again, you cannot share a country with people like that. You cannot bridge that degree of divide. It's just you can't. There's no way you can do that. But moreover, it demonstrates that they believe that anything done to further their racialist agenda, there's just nothing matters. It used to be political correctness was kind of cute. I mean, not really, but you know what I mean. It was somewhat harmless when it started out. It was just annoying and obnoxious. Now they are willing to destroy every aspect of civilization. It's like, wait, you're just going to tell me because the people committing this happen to be black, you're just going to let it go on? Yes, that's what BLM unleashed. A complete uninhibition. And also from Chicago, this is from the post-millennial, Chicago teens charged with trespassing after allegedly stealing crashing car resulting in the death of a six-month-old. So this is rampant. Obviously, there's a rash of carjackings all over the country, and it's, it's almost exclusively black youth. And these are serious crimes, holding up people, uh, you know, with guns, often beating people. This is stuff that should, the first time you do this, I don't care your age. This is not petty theft. This, you should be serving hard time. But there is another aspect of this that really hits close to home for me. You know, I live outside of Baltimore, which is very similar to Chicago. Yes, I know I do need to move out, but find me the red state worth worth me going to so I don't have to keep moving. But anyway, I I had a um a neighbor, someone two blocks away, who was cut down in the prime of his life because he was killed in a car accident from these youths who steal cars. So you'll have these teenagers, they'll steal cars, and it's not just the fact that, you know, the the owner loses his car. They drive like animals, of course. And they wind up killing people. This this happens everywhere. So two Chicago teens that allegedly caused a fatal crash with a stolen vehicle on Sunday, which led to the death of a six-month-old infant, 
are receiving only misdemeanor charges. One's 14, but the other is 17. They face a count of criminal trespassing. That's it. Criminal trespassing in connection with theft of the car. There's multiple hospitalizations from the, you know, um, the six-month-old baby was killed, the mother, Christian, and the two sisters remain in the hospital. And Chicago police say that the they stolen Hyundai was traveling westbound on the 4400 block of West Washington when it struck a pickup truck around 5 p.m. That's it. Misdemeanor charges. We all know if the rash of crimes were committed by white youths, we wouldn't tolerate it. There's no outcry that we must do something. Now, yes, in general, this deincarceration agenda is generic. You know, both Republicans and Democrats, they've bought into it, even independent of the racial agenda, but it's the racial agenda that fueled this issue. Nobody will refute what I'm saying. This is the issue that got Trump to to really go back on 30 years worth of views. I mean, ever since he wrote his book in the, the late 80s, he talked a lot about crime. They said, this is how you get the black vote. And it's simply disgusting. And we cannot survive as a, as, as a, as a civilization. We are willing to destroy lives over the racial agenda. It's that simple. It's that simple. What is going to happen when you have a generation of black youth who get the message that even after killing a six-month-old by stealing a car and crashing it, and fine, I'm not saying they, they get the death penalty from manslaughter like that, but a misdemeanor charge. And I guarantee you, I'm sure it wasn't their first infraction. I'm sure it wasn't. There's one other aspect of this I want to get to before our interview. But first, today's show is sponsored by our friends at Jace Medical. By the way, for those of you who are, some people ask me, it's J-A-S-E, not not with a C, but with an S, jacemedical.com. This is not if. When you are caught flat-footed again, and they go and unleash a pathogen on us, and you're going to need antibiotics. Steve Dace, my buddy, will tell you how important it was when he had his recent case of MRSA. And by the way, thank you for your prayers and everything. A lot of people have expressed interest. I've gotten a lot of emails about him. People have all these ideas. Thank God it wasn't sepsis in the end. It turns out he must have been allergic to antibiotics. So you do have to make sure you're not allergic, which is why at Jace Medical you fill out a questionnaire to make sure that you're not contraindicated, allergic. Then they'll write you a prescription and boom, you put promo code review at checkout to get a discount. And then a couple days later, you will get your Jace case mailed to you. Contains five life-saving antibiotics from doxycycline to azithromycin uh, to um, obviously all the, all the major ones you need for UTI, for sinus infection, you name it. We don't live in the same country anymore where you could assume it's going to be there when you need it in the pharmacy with all the shortages we have. Um, in fact, we're already in this crisis today, so go to jacemedical.com, offer code REVIEW. I don't have so much time to get into this because I really want to give more time to Heather. 
um, in her new book, and and she's just so bold with her with her message. But there is an important action item. There's a story out. The first step act keeps getting worse and worse and worse. One of the points, and I don't, I, I can't relitigate this, but when Trump and the Republicans bought into it, they're like, "No, the early release is only going to be for first-time nonviolent people that become pastors, ordained ministers in jail, and are the greatest human beings alive." And they take these proven anti-recidivism courses that magically make it that they just won't be criminals when you let them out and recidivate like they all do. And I noted at the time, I said, look, the agencies want to let these people out. The organizations pushing this want them out. If it's really the way you're saying, no one will be let out. So obviously, you pass this bill, you're going to have the release, and you're not going to have any of these programs. They won't. Ha- there won't be any accountability. It's going to be automatic that everyone basically gets a third of their sentence lopped off with home confinement or halfway houses or whatever. And basically that's what's happened on numerous fronts. But the U.S. Sentencing Commission keeps making more leniencies. Remember, you pass a law, but we're not governed by the rule of law. So now there's certain early release provisions that were made retroactive, but there were certain ones that are called compassionate release that were not made retroactively. It was specifically not supposed to be retroactive. And it was called for under extraordinary and compelling reasons that they could request compassionate release. But it wasn't going to apply to those already in prison, in federal prison. Well, the U.S. Sentencing Commission is illegally legislating retroactive um, eligibility for this. Anyone who served more than 10 years, he can assert a gross disparity between his sentence and those sentenced under a change in law as fulfillment of the statute's extraordinary and compelling reason. And basically, again, this will allow all the liberal judges to reduce sentences if they find, in their own words— that the that that it's in, inequitable in light of changes in law, so they could say in light light of new changes in law, this guy is serving too long, and you know what that means. It's it's going to be racially tinged, all that stuff. Basically, what this is going to do is retroactively flood the courts, clog the courts with. Endless cases. This already happened with COVID. While they locked up business owners for opening up their business, they used the same COVID to say, oh, they're going to catch COVID and die in jail. So compassionate release. They, they let out a few thousand, by the way, and never put them back in. This is going to do that. And by the way, what that does is the, the it, it makes it that the prosecutors don't have time to properly mount a case against it. So they're just going to let them go. Congress has until I believe the end of the year, or maybe 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 it's the end of the fiscal year, I have to check, to nullify it. If they don't disapprove of it, the U.S. Sentencing Commission's rule is binding. So all these Republicans and even Democrats who are getting beaten up on Capitol Hill are saying, we need to do something about the crime. I guarantee you the Koch brothers and, and all the people that actually run Trump's policy shop 
will be out there in full force saying, don't disapprove of this rule. But I'm just telling you, I warned at the time that this whole thing is a smokescreen. And it turns out it is. There's a, there, I don't have time to really get delve into the details, but the, the Government Accountability Office basically says that there's no tracking of people before they give out the credits. They fail to accurately measure inmate release risk. There's no evidence-based programs. They don't exist. Um, they have no goals or metrics. They just basically give it out to everyone. That's That's basically what they found. Because the Bureau of Prisons did not have data on program participation back to December 21st, 2018, BOP was to award eligible incarcerated people first step back time credits based on a presumption, it's from GAO, based on a presumption of participation in these programs. There's no actual proof they actually participate. BOP based the interim procedure on a presumption of participation, which is not based on actual program participation or an incarcerated person's needs. According to BOP officials, this aligned with the final rule that indicated that eligible incarcerated people were to be awarded a presumption of participation for the time they were incarcerated. They calculated first-time First Step Act time credits for these cohorts based on the number of days that they were incarcerated at a designated POP facility. So straight up, oh, you serve this much time, you get this much time off. No evidence they served this stuff. They, 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 they participated in any of these courses. They don't even exist. A senior BOP official stated in July 2022 that BOP applied First Step Act time credits to all eligible incarcerated people's sentences that met the criteria for the priority cohort. This whole thing is a lie. I warned about it. I am proud that at Conservative Review, we are the only ones who scored against that bill. So all these Republicans, just like, oh, we're for border security, we're for this, we're for that. And then when it comes down to it, when you have the legislative vehicle that will affect the actual outcome, they toss an interception. But let's not forget Let's not forget, going back to the theme today, the primary driver, the reason why Republicans are so into this now, it is very clear it is because of race. And I'm just going to tell you, whatever little filter I've had until now, I'm taking off. And I don't care. I'm going to say what needs to be said. The identity politics is killing us. You cannot survive as a civilization. I mean, it would be crazy enough if you said this group is exempt from law enforcement. So it would be one thing if, I don't know, it would be like Americans of, I don't know, Korean or Japanese descent. Well, they don't commit too much violent crime, so, you know, it's not fair, but civilization won't unwind. But if you take the cohort that commits the most violent crime— and then says they're exempt because they happen to be of a certain color, we're screwed. Or, or if wholesale, you just you know have lenient laws or implementation of those laws because you know it will benefit that group, we are totally, totally screwed. That's just the way it is. So let's move on. 
So, folks, I wanted to get to our interview segment today. As promised, Heather McDonald coming up. First, our interview segment today is sponsored by our friends at Birch Gold. You know, as we talk about the disgusting nature of this diversity agenda, well, there's one time diversity is good. Diversifying your portfolio with Birch Gold. Don't put it all in the stock market casino. Obviously, we're done with tax season this year, but it's never too early to begin preparing for next year, putting in next year, I think it's going to be about $6,500 a year, you and your spouse, for an IRA or a 401k tax-deferred account. What are you going to put that in? Vanguard? Fidelity? Not a good time, folks. Not a good time. Put it in something of value with Birch Gold. Text Daniel to 989898, and you get a free info kit describing how to help convert that IRA, first of all, an existing one or a new one you want to create, into something of value with precious metals. They have great specialists on the line there. Um, really, really smart people. I've spoken to them for a very long time. Fascinating guys. They're all like economist types. So again, text Daniel to 989898. Okay, speaking of diversification. So one of our best guests over the years has been Heather McDonald. She's a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute. I have like a whole shelf of her books here in my office over the years. And she has another blockbuster book out Um, Make sure to pick it up anywhere you get books. When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. You could follow her on Twitter at HMD at MI. HMD at MI. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's great being with you again, Daniel. Thank you for having me on. So, Heather, I wanted to talk about why you feel this is a new level. My whole life, I'm 38 now, really my entire life, I've grown up in a society where we've been obsessed with race, where there's been tendentious treatment based on your identity of some sort. Uh, There's always been an obsession, but I think clearly something has been turbocharged the last couple of years. And you've been writing about uh, affirmative action and all this stuff for many, many years But I sense that you wrote this book because we've reached the crescendo. We've reached some new climax. Is is that correct? Yeah, and I want to commend you, Daniel, on noticing that this has been going on for a long time. I'm I'm always amazed at the the very short timelines that people give the diversity obsession. For instance, Jonathan Haidt said, oh, this all got really bad around 2015. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? (laughs) As you say, it's been going on for decades. Um, And there was also the fallacies that people uh, sort of reassured themselves with, like, well, oh, there's just a bunch of silly snowflakes in gender studies departments at Yale. You know, it's never going to spread to the business economy. It's never going to spread to science fields. We're fine. You know, let's just let these kids throw tantrums and we'll look away. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, it was inevitably going to spread. It was going to take down math and science. But it did get much worse uh, after the George Floyd race riots. Because what happened then was a unanimous outbreak of hysteria and neuroses and psychosis on the part of our elite leaders. 
where after the George Floyd race riots, during them, virtually every mainstream institution, whether it's a medical school, a law firm, a university, uh, media, banks, restaurants, corporations, big tech, small tech, they all put out statements, and, and in the arts as well, art museums, orchestras, opera companies, theater companies, dance companies, they all put out statements saying, oh, we, we have to confess we're all complicitous in George Floyd's death. We are all systemically racist. America remains a white supremacist country. And we are now deciding that our mission is anti-racism. We may be the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We thought our, you know, you may have thought our mission was preserving, passing on, and, and teaching about the world's greatest artistic traditions. No. The Metropolitan Museum of Art's mission now is anti-racism. The mission of medical schools is now anti-racism. And, and so the, what, what changed after George Floyd was simply the decibel level and the, at the increasing absurdity of the claims. So to claim that medicine is a racist enterprise or science is, is absolutely insane, and yet that is the claim being made. So a, a couple of things to unpack there. I, I think that's really important that the decibel level has risen. I'm also wondering if you have seen just a change in the attitude. I feel like in the 90s it was more like this elitist view that, well, we, we, we feel a little guilty based on what happened earlier in the century. We still feel that, so we feel like there needs to be more accommodations versus post-Floyd, if you want to mark it at that you know era around the last number of years, is almost more like a dehumanization. Don't, don't, you, don't you get the sense that what I'm seeing is almost like you're a lesser being if you're white. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, th- again, these strains were there, but now it is absolutely the case, Daniel, that all the New York Times needs to do to take down an individual or an institution is to put white before that individual or that institution's name. And, and you have, in so doing, uh, put the burden of suspicion on that individual and you assume that he is guilty he's currently racist he's certainly bearing the racism of his ancestors but he is part of the problem and uh at the very least needs race racial re-education but ideally should step down from his job now that's not anything we've ever actually seen happen including in elite institutions you know i'm, I'm waiting for these anti-racist leaders to say, oh, in penance, I'm going to give up my job, and here's, here it will be for a black person. They will say implicitly, if you're a heterosexual white male applying for a job, you're not going to get it. But, but people, white males who already have their jobs, there's not been a noticeable uh, resignation, set of res- resignations to make way for diversity. I mean, is this like Louis the Fourteenth after me, the deluge? In other words, why don't the, these people see it coming? This is what I don't understand, that this agenda is primarily promoted by white people. So do they well, not understand what it's going to do to them? I, that's another conservative safe harbor that I think is a little bit 
uh, off. It, it is certainly promoted by white people, but let's not pretend that it is not also promoted by black leaders. Mm. Uh, it's it's not as if blacks are unanim- unanimously saying, no, we want to meet standards. Don't lower standards on our behalf. We're going to meet them. In fact, the claim is always lower standards. There are obviously many exceptions of leaders. There's a guy out in Minnesota, Kendall Quarles, who's very, very impressive, that really are in the sort of the Booker T. Washington tradition of saying we need to work on our own social capital and and study, you know. But But by and large, I would say the reflex of black activists and political leaders is if if blacks are not doing as well on this or that exam it's a racist test lower get rid of the test or lower standards on our behalf so it's not just a white thing so I, I want you to discuss a little bit from this chapter one i mean i'm just starting to get through it with medicine you really focus a lot on medicine, and we've certainly talked about the issues in the medical field on all different fronts here. But you talk about the fact that in 2021, the average score of white applicants on the MCAT um, was in the 71st percentile, and the average score for black applicants was the, the 37th percentile. Yet, over time, only 8% of white college seniors with a below average undergraduate GPA and below average MCAT score were offered a seat in medical school while over 56%, meaning more than half of the black college seniors with below average undergraduate GPAs and below average MCATs were admitted. What is the civilization consequence to that? It could be very bad because it's not as if this is a, you know, we one used to hear the story about the big Midwestern, colleges, the so-called land-grant colleges in the mid-20th century, and they would be very uh, liberal in their admissions policies, and they'd let everybody in and give them a chance, but if they didn't make it after their first year, they were, they were out of there. You know, they, they couldn't keep up. They were gone. What happens now is we have, in every institution, but it's worse and it's more scary in medical schools or in engineering schools, we have these vast racial preferences where black and Hispanic students are admitted with test scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by white and Asian. And rather than facing any kind of final uh, you know, standard, the standards get lowered all the way along to make sure that they never... Uh, leave and and lower the the institution's diversity numbers. So there's a whole bureaucratic subspecialty in colleges now called retention specialists. You've got deans of retention or associate vice provosts of 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 retention just adding to the cost of tuition with the ever, ever expanding student services and diversity bureaucracy. And the whole point is we've admitted students who are not competitively qualified with our, 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 uh, on a par with the rest of our student body. They've 
left to their own devices, they're going to fail out of all their science classes. But we're going to make sure they stay here, and we're going to throw everything we got, but they, it never gets better. So what do we have the next step? So we've admitted black and Hispanic students with test scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites and Asians. And no, no surprise here, they don't do well in medical school. And when it comes to taking the first step of the medical licensing exam, step one after their second year of medical school, they get rock-bottom scores. So what are we going to do here? Say, sorry, we gave you a chance. You're actually better, you know, maybe become a nurse or a lab technician, but medicine may not be the optimal profession for you. No, that's not what we do. We say, okay, well, then the test must be racist. And so the mm. medical step one of medical school licensing exam uh, last year got rid of its grading. It used to be a graded test, you know, A through, through F. And it got rid of the grades and went pass-fail, which is a much grosser uh, way of trying to ascertain who's medically qualified and who's not. And the the step one of the exam is used in part to help place students in residencies. So now those residencies aren't going to know how any given student ranks and whether this is somebody that is barely scraped by with a D or whether it's an A-plus student. And that's going to continue the next step two, I'm sure, will eventually come go under pressure to race norm or, or to remove any kind of disparate impact. Uh, and, of course, the, the fear is, is that if you're taken into an emergency room after a car crash, the person, the doctor that walks through that door is a beneficiary of racial preferences all his life uh, and has never had to meet the same standards as his peers. And what's scary about that is that, you know, it also harms those individuals who happen to be um, of that race that did it their own way and they're totally competent and qualified and talented. But then over time, you're going to imbue in society this sense of, wait a minute, is this guy an affirmative action hire? Even though he could be very talented, but they're actually going to stigmatize them. Isn't that a concern that it's going to backlash? It, it, there's going to cause a backlash in the long term. Over time, Daniel, I mean, I I feel that for anybody, I and I assume that for females as well. This is not just a race thing. Sure. Any regime that has racial preferences, you have not no reason at all to be confident that that person is the best qualified. I, I'm, I'm the beneficiary, I'm sure, all my life of sex preferences. I hate it. <laughs> I've been chosen for various panels or whatnot on the ridiculous ground that they need a female. Uh, so I have no idea, you know, was I the best or the best female? And that's certainly the true for minorities. And, yes, there are individuals. And, and my book, you know, I talk about group averages, I, and I'm forced to do so. It's a very uncomfortable thing to give the data. I've noticed whites are very, very uncomfortable yes. hearing about the crime Especially gap, Republicans. About, yes. But, but you lay it all out, certainly a big part of the second half of your book, and we've had you on over the years a lot about crime. As you're talking, I'm looking at this article 
about black incarcerations dropping and, and zero hedge. I mean, it's been all over the place. I mean, you now have, according to Bureau of Justice Statistics, I think we're back to like 1980s level incarceration. So everyone's like, man, the the um, incarceration levels really dropped. I'm like, well, okay, but uh, the crime rate has also uh, risen to the point that we reversed the miraculous two-decade-long decrease. So that might not be a good thing, right? Yeah, well, it's like everything else in the criminal justice system today. It's all driven by disparate impact. The reason that we are not incarcerating uh, is because if we were to do so in a, in, you know, and enforce the law in a colorblind constitutional manner, it will have a disparate impact on blacks, not because the law is racist, but because blacks' criminal offending is so much higher. And we have decided, some of us, you know, the decision makers among us, have decided that they would rather let criminals go free than incarcerate them and have a disparate impact on black criminals. And yes, uh, certainly post-George Floyd, uh, we had the largest, and you know, I'm I'm, your audience doesn't need to hear this, Daniel, because you're on top of it completely, but we did have the largest one-year increase in homicide in this nation's history. Not a coincidentally, the police have been browbeaten into passivity. Resignations, retirements are, are just absolutely uh, catastrophic. Police forces across the country are way, way low on manpower. Uh, and that's all having an effect on, on, above all, on black homicide victimization rates. Black, blacks are being gunned down in these insane drive-by shootings at an, an, just an enormous, enormously high rate. I mean, I know you saw that, that JAMA study that said that black juveniles are now 100 times more likely to be killed in gun homicide than whites. I mean, that's, a, that's just an astounding thing, and yet nobody wants to talk about it because the people that's killing those black juveniles are black themselves. See, what really scares me, this is the biggest thing that scares me that no Republican wants to talk about, but the bubble we are seeing, the impending, I mean, it's already a bubble, but the people in the pipeline among black youth I'm talking about people, you know, 5 to 17 years old now. I'm noticing there's a number of troubling trends. Obviously, you have uh, BJS just came out with a report on those released or those admitted to state prison in between 2009 and 2014. Okay, so that yeah. is that was the peak incarceration era, so to speak. So it's only gotten worse, but 64% arrested before they turned 20 years old. 59% had 10 or more prior arrests. So a lot of this is starting increasingly young. I mean, really young. Uh, I'm also seeing, and I want to get your take on this, seemingly, I don't necessarily have data for this, but anecdotally more females even roped into this. I'm seeing this extreme culture of violence across the board, and it's almost beyond even just crime of of opportunity, the obviously you see all the people rummaging through the San Francisco stores now because they basically legalized theft, things like that. But I'm talking about these senseless beatdowns. Some of them are just generally violent. Some of them seem to be racially targeted. There was this video passed around uh, recently in Chicago that appeared to be targeting a white woman. 
I look at that and I'm like, how is that sustainable? So Heather, do you do you believe that this turbocharged level of racial grievancing and almost dehumanization of whites is raising a generation of black youth that aren't just ailing from the problems that the last one or two generations had, but with this seething hatred towards whites? I think that's probably inevitable. I mean, if they listen now, you know, inner city culture is sort of a world apart. Um, and and youth culture generally. I mean, we're most people are not listening to the news, and they're certainly not reading the Wash, the New York Times, or the Washington Post. But I think messages do get spread, and there's such a uh, it's viewed as so acceptable to demonize whites that that message has to be getting across. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the rates of interracial violence have always been massively skewed. Blacks commit 88, 80, last time I looked, it's now 87% of all interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks. That's non-lethal because this is reported by the victims. Um, so there's always been that, but it, it probably, it can and therefore will get worse. Now, you talk a little bit about how they manipulate very public, sensational national stories, mass shootings, and then they try to draw a narrative um, from those handful of cases where you'll have a white commit a mass shooting attack in an even rarer instance where it's racially motivated the other way to build a narrative that the crime is all from whites and it's particularly targeting blacks. Um, describe how that how that has happened, uh, particularly the last few years since George Floyd. Well, it's just absurd. I mean, we're living one fiction after another, uh, and we've seen this now with the Ralph Yarl case, the idea that, oh, now we have, you know, ringing the doorbell, we're black, that that's how black people die. There's all this maudlin, you know, the whites are killing us again, LeBron James or or Joe Biden, that's just not the case. I, you know, you could remove all black, white shootings of blacks and police shootings of blacks, and you'd have no effect on the black homicide rate. Mm. Blacks are killing each other off at astronomical rates. 20, you know, ages 10 to 24 die of gun homicide at 25 times the rate of whites. That's because they're killing each other at 25 times the rate. So... You know, this idea that somehow this Ralph Yarl shooting is representative is a preposterous. It's not. It's absolutely unusual. Um, and we saw that as well with the anti-Asian uh, hate crimes. Yep. We're all supposed to pretend that it's whites who who pose a threat to these elderly Asians when we've all seen the videos of these black teens just beating up mercilessly these elderly, frail elderly Asians, we've seen it, and the data proves it, and yet the narrative is, is absolutely unchangeable. It's, you, it is fact-resistant. So that leads to the other question that has really disturbed me for many, many years. I've been warning about this. 
um, the reluctance on the political right to deal with this in a prudent and constitutional manner, as you said, to have a colorblind society. My concern is that everything in politics and society leads to a pendulum, a rubber band effect. And my concern is that the more they fail to deal with this prudently and the more they allow this cancer to spread where everything is racial supremacy, everything is, you know, oh, my gosh, we are so happy that this is black, 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 this whites are bad that, you know, a good number of the youth will just get brainwashed into this. But those who aren't will take a look at that and say, well, wait a minute, I'm being taught that the most important thing in life is race. Well, I'm not black. I'm white. All right, so I'm going to take pride in my race. Do you think that if this continues, that not only are we going to suffer from all of these societal ills we're talking about, but that you're going to have, then you're going to have to contend with the, a legitimate white nationalism that rises up to combat it? Um, you know, when you, when you cry a wolf all the time where it doesn't exist, are we creating it? Well, you know, it would certainly be logical, and I wouldn't blame the people who did it, because it's just closing the circle. Why does every other group get identity politics and not whites? There's no real good answer for that except the usual, well, you know, blacks by definition can't be racist, which is ridiculous. Um, and so it doesn't, it would not help social harmony, but it is, they're certainly asking for it. And, you know, I would say that a certain amount of Western civilization chauvinism is appropriate. Now, this got Steve King canned, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with being proud of European civilization. It has given the world civilization. It has given the world science. It's given the world affluence. It's given it me medicine, the rule of law, due process of law, the idea of of, of constitutional limited government. All of these are Western ideas. Tolerance, religious tolerance, that's a Western idea. Gay rights, Western idea. Go go try and have a trans gay pride or drag queen hour in Uganda right now. You know, you may face the death penalty. Um, so there's nothing wrong with saying that I'm proud of my culture and that's, as far as I can tell, all that the Proud Boys or any of those other groups have ever said. But, of course, they're immediately portrayed as white supremacists. So we'll see how this works out. Obviously, a, like a true white identity politics movement uh, would have a very hard time getting off the ground because you already have the federal government declaring that the biggest domestic threat in the country is white supremacy, which is ridiculous. But they would do everything they could to quell, you know, quash well, something it, Or like maybe that. create it. I mean, from what we're seeing with some of these court filings, when you do have some of these groups, uh, a good number of them are seem to be involved with the FBI or either either directly working with them or some sort of informant. So that's that's a whole nother can of worms there. We're almost uh -huh. we're almost out of time here, but I want to get to a couple other themes. What do you mean by destroying beauty? It's an interesting theme that you weave through the book. Um, we certainly see the effects on on civilization outcomes, on science, on medicine. 
obviously education. What do you mean by beauty? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement in the post-George hysteria has gone after the fine arts as well. So you have orchestra companies and opera companies and dance companies and museums saying we too are racist and we need to make amends and um, and you should look at Western music, Western art through the lens of racial oppression and guilt. So if you're going to be looking at a uh, Dutch 17th century Baroque masterpiece still life, don't see it for the beauty of the composition and the brush strokes and the light, see it as a outgrowth of colonialism and and white oppression. That's what museum wall labels are going around, uh, t- turning on their Western European art collection and trying to say that art is simply uh, an, an outgrowth of um, of Western imperialism, and that's true in classical music as well. The greatest composers uh, are being accused of being white males, and they're being accused amazingly by leading classical music critics. Uh, The head of the League of American Orchestras goes around apologizing for being white and ruining the fact that his donors are white and the audiences are predominantly white and the composers are white. So uh, this is the thing that breaks my heart the most. Uh, because these traditions are not about race. They're not about oppression. They're about beauty. Beauty. You know, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking out loud here. Another observation. You know, we're, we're talking about today, we're trying to kind of weave in this theme that the the affirmative action has been there for decades, but there, there's it's been turbocharged on several levels. And and one of them, I think, you're, you're hitting on with the culture I would say if I go back to when I was a kid, so you would have, let's just say, inner city culture, whether it's the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you carry yourself. Um, You know, they might have exalted it a little bit, but they wouldn't try to mimic it. But now, am I missing something? Am I just imagining this? I, I seem to notice a lot of individuals who aren't black and certainly didn't come from the inner city, they're starting to mirror their way of speech. Am I imagining that well i think that's been going on for a long time i don't Uh know about the speech but i think you've had uh bizarrely i mean this gangster rap culture a lot of white kids are trying to mimic that you know they've been doing that with the hat the backward baseball cap yo bro everyone everyone says these things like now I, i i've never i haven't heard of that until recently Oh, really? No, I think that's been going on for huh. 15, 15 years or so, at least. Maybe it's just gone more mainstream, even into white, educated adults. I, I think that's what I'm seeing. And, and it ties into a little bit what I'm very disturbed about. I always joke around, the only thing worse than Democrat affirmative action is Republican affirmative action. And I, I notice a lot, in, in even relatively better conservative candidates, elected officials— there's almost a twinkle in their eye when they're able to assert a data point. Oh, and this is the blacks got affected this way. And it's like almost like that's a higher level of of humanity, more bonus points, more brownie points. We find this a lot in primaries where if you have a black run as a Republican, so we want the best conservative who could win. 
Um, but and and that might be a black, a white, a this, or that. But the minute there's someone black in the race, you're done. There is no effort to d- discern who is the best candidate. Automatically, black conservative. I'm like, whoa, well, we got to see if he's conservative first. And that's what scares me that there's almost like this Stockholm syndrome you're finding on the right, where while they claim to oppose it, they're almost adopting that culture themselves. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know how much they're claiming to oppose it, but, uh, but obviously the right has been obsessed with its own trying to get, match tit-for-tat Democrats when it comes to diversity. And, I mean, what I found most disgusting was when all of a sudden Republican politicians would start doing their call-outs to single mothers as if this is some kind of ontological yes. category. But you would have... You know, it's now a standard line in Republican speeches, Marco Rubio. You know, well, we're going to do this mothers, for like, single mothers. We should mothers. only strive for that. And like, well, wait a minute. I mean, it's an unfortunate circumstance. Might happen. You got to deal with it. But like the way you're talking about it, it's almost it's like as you're if it's inevitable. It's like it's as I say. It's like it's an ontological category, not something that people did through deliberate, voluntary actions. You know, and so where's the father? Like, why aren't we talking about the fathers? But but the Republicans just never, they don't have the courage of their convictions to say, no, we are going to absolutely back two-parent married family, biological families. And sorry, single motherhood, you know, we understand you're trying, but it is an absolute disaster for children. They're not going to say that. No, and they're not referring to the people whose husbands die because that would statistically be stagnant over time. That wouldn't, you know, increase... Over, over time, you have that baseline, uh, um, as always. This is more of a lifestyle that, again, they, cl- they claim to kind of oppose. They stand for traditional values, but then they don't really. So this leaves us with a pretty depressing conclusion here. You talk about the fact that the system will have to rot out within and be reinvented, which will take 50 to 100 years. Come on, Heather. You don't have anything better than that. <laughs> Well, I, you know what I have is that people have to just say I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be browbeat beaten by the claim of racism anymore. I'm, you can call me a racist all you want. I've got the facts. This is not a racist country. It was a racist country. There's no question. It was a horribly nasty, mean-spirited, contemptuous, contemptible country when it came to blacks for very long. But we're not that country any longer. And if we tear down meritocratic standards because they have disparate impact, we are going to end our civilizational success. Bingo. We can't survive. We cannot survive with this racial obsession, supremacism, um, but we need a reawakening of voices who are willing to say this so we can begin extirpating every aspect of racial preferences from our uh, body politic, our policy, our law, our culture, all of it. Um, it's all there. All this, tons of statistics here. Um, when race trumps merit, uh, Heather McDonald, it's, it's available everywhere. Anywhere else people could follow your work? Um, I think my Twitter account is pretty uh, sort of synoptic on all of the appearances I've been doing. So I can't even, I don't even know what the Twitter handle is. It's very hard <laughs> to know. But if you, just, if you just Google Heather McDonald and Twitter, it'll take you there. <laughs> HMD at MI on Twitter. Thank you, Heather, and I wish you much success with this book. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate it. Take care. So there you have it, folks. Heather McDonald, 
um, truly a brave voice for decades. Decades has always done good work. And yes, she is willing to venture where other people are not willing to go, uh, but I'm willing to go there as well. So I'm telling you, I am not filtering myself anymore. Not that I really was before, but this is the thing. Which Republicans, which new party will finally, finally extirpate race from our midst that we are truly created equal in the image of God Endgame. Um, Again, I'm going to be a little bit in and out this week, not going to be posting on social media as much or as many columns. You could still email me, Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. We'll be out at the ranges a lot where I don't have service, but I'm going to try to at least do a show every day. We will get back to some of the news of the day, debt ceiling, presidential election, and COVID stuff, new studies coming out on the vaccine and masks, different things like that. So again, send me your comments, questions, and concerns as well. At Daniel Horowitz is the Twitter. Um, the Blaze, conservativereview.com are where you will find the columns. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.